Why does God allow evil? All of us at some point in our lives have asked this question and wrestled with it. If God is all powerful, he can stop evil. If God is all good, wouldn't he want to stop evil? And yet evil exists. So some skeptics would say maybe an all powerful good God does not. It's a question that Christians certainly wrestle with. We see in the Bible, people like David, people like Job, like Joseph, asking for justice. But we also see a lot of non-believers, like Einstein, who's clearly one of the great thinkers in the history of the world, who believe that somehow the science and math of the universe pointed towards a God, but he couldn't believe in the Christian God because of the existence of pain and suffering. People like Darwin, who gave us Darwinian evolution, really at its core, his problem was suffering and evil within the world. But where do we begin to tackle an issue as big as this? So what is evil? Sometimes when we think about evil, we think there's good and evil, these equal and opposite forces that kind of are competing against each other. But that's not what evil is. See, you can have good without evil, but you can't have evil without good. You can't have evil without good. Think about like truth and a lie. You can have truth without somebody telling a lie, but you can't tell a lie unless there's first such a thing as truth to be corrupted. That's what evil is like. Evil is a corruption of something that is first good. So if evil is a corruption of good, then good must exist. And if good exists, then interestingly, there must be a God. So when somebody raises the problem of evil, what they're assuming is there's a real standard of goodness that exists, objective good. And if that is the case, then there must be a God to ground that good. So raising the problem of evil is kind of an indirect piece of evidence that there first must be a good moral standard, namely a God, a moral lawgiver, to ground that good. So this helps us frame the question, but it doesn't tell us why God allows evil. Why doesn't he stop it? Well, one way to make sense of this is the purpose for which human beings exist. Why are we here? God has not made us like trees. He's not made us like mountains. He hasn't made us like animals. God has uniquely given human beings the ability to make meaningful choices. And that's because God wants to be in a relationship with us. He wants to allow us to have meaningful relationships with other people. And if you create beings capable of loving, then guess what? you also have to have beings capable of choosing not to love. Now, if I found out, for example, that my wife was a robot and she was programmed to say the right thing, do the right things, to make me think that she really was the most faithful, loving wife, it was completely change our relationship. The only reason there's value with my wife is that we choose to love each other. That's what God chose with us. He gave us the ability to choose to follow him and to do good and to do wonderful things and have courage and fight for peace and show justice. But if God's gonna give us the ability, by definition without free will, he has to give us the ability to choose wrong things and bring suffering into the world. So yes, God knew that we would do horrible things without free will. But God also knew that it's only by giving us that free will that we could truly love God, truly love other people, and experience the good, best things that life has to offer. We are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Did that make your mind hurt? How great is our God? For a lot of people, God's not very great because of evil and suffering. And a lot of times we have no answer for that. But I want you to know that as we plunge into knowing and loving God with all of our mind, there is rhyme and reason 
to why things exist and what God is doing ultimately in the world. What you just watched was the clip that the students watched this last Wednesday night. And we talked about this whole subject briefly, the whole problem of evil and suffering. Because, and it's just not students, week in and week out, we live in a world where there is opposition to the Christian faith because of doubt, skepticism, and problems as it's perceived. And God's calling us to be able to be his ambassadors, his plan A, but we want to equip you. And I trust that you're able to um, come to the plan A conference that was mentioned because it's just going to be a beautiful time of equipping, not necessarily in apologetics, but to be able to equip ourselves how to do uh, outreach, if you will, that is right size for who you are as an individual and your personality. We're going to jump into God's word here this morning, and uh, we are going to step into uh, being able to uh, go past the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, but I'd like to pray. Lord Jesus, we ask this morning that you would take your word and you would apply it to our hearts and lives as we jump right in the middle of your message that you gave along the Sea of Galilee on that day. Lord, take it and apply it to us in this day. Lord, we are up against an awful lot of changes in our world, but Lord, you have not changed. Your goodness, your greatness is still secure. And we have the gospel, the good news to offer to others, to lead them and encourage them to be in into a relationship with you. And Lord, even here this morning, if there's individuals who have never had that opportunity to cross a line of faith or to seek you out or to uh, commit themselves to you, we pray that you would speak to them through your Holy Spirit, your spirit who is present with us because you promise wherever two or three are gathered in your name that there you would be. And so, Lord, we defer to you. And we defer to you to use this scripture passage today as a check and balance in our own life, but to call us into a secret place of growing intimacy, hope, joy, strength, and power in our own personal lives. That is our prayer. In your name we pray. Amen. So... We live in a world that uh, in many ways is different than the world of Jesus. When Jesus uh, was starting his ministry at the age of 30, he began teaching about the kingdom of God, the kingdom referring to the reign and the rule of God. And he taught them in all kinds of natural locations, including the location that's behind me, and that is the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee was a nice, beautiful backdrop, but there was a lot of turmoil going on in that culture at that time. Not just that the Israelites were up against Roman oppression and all was going on, but also that there was infighting as to what the real religion needed to be in the faith and who was supposed to be the leader of that. Jesus shows up and he begins teaching and proclaiming in that culture in that day, and he's addressing some of the same situations, believe it or not, that we still deal with today. And you know why? Because we are all humans in every generation, every millennium, and Jesus Christ wants to be able to bring about change in our life here today as surely as he did then. So with that, I want you to take your scriptures, if you have them, or your electronic device, and open to the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in Matthew chapter 5. 
And in Matthew chapter 5, we find that Jesus uh, has exhorted them concerning the kingdom following his beautiful demonstration of the kingdom through signs and wonders and miracles. And so in chapter 5 is where we began, and we began to walk our way through it. And last week, we found ourselves with this huge amount of information. And maybe it was overwhelming to you, but Jesus was talking about how we needed to live in the kingdom of God and who he is and his part. And so we have up here the kingdom orientation. His orientation meeting to them was talking about the old versus the new moral reality. And with this, he shares six situations where goodness that lives from the heart and through the kingdom of God that's now among us in his present reign is contrasted with the old righteousness focused merely on doing the right thing. In other words, Jesus confronted religion because religion was defined as doing the right thing, doing the right works. And oh my goodness, if you don't do the right thing, you are out of line. And Jesus says it's not about actions. There are actions that are important to live a faith filled with God, but he was talking about the source of actions. And the source of actions is where the focus of his sermon on the mount on that day was and still needs to be for us today. And so with that, he gave these six. They're listed. We walk through them. We're not walking through them again. You can listen online from last week. Go to the website. But what he did was he gave reference to the old righteousness or the old rightness and saying, you heard it was said. And so he's referencing the Hebrew scriptures, what they had been taught. I don't know how many hundreds, thousands of people were sitting on this hillside. He said, you heard it was said, but then he is a new authority in the faith. He says, but I say to you, but I say to you, he wasn't negating what had been said, but he was shifting the focus from a focus on actions to the source of actions, shifting a focus on all the do's and don'ts that had been out there and perverted by the religious heat and elite of the day, and he shifted it to be focused on who he was God come in the flesh, God himself to change and transform people's life. The kingdom of God is at hand. And what he was doing in these situations we looked at last week was getting individuals to not get caught up in religiosity and all the rules, you heard it was said, but to get people focused on the heart of God and letting God dwell within them and change them from the inside out. His communication was an inside-out, upside-down kind of communication, and they stood back in awe. Oh, my goodness, what's going on? So with that, then, he steps from these six into chapter six. You got it? You with me? Trey, I got a little bit of a ringing up here, at least what I'm hearing. So with that, we turn to chapter 6. 
Here we go. You ready? You ready? <laughs> I don't know. Are you? These ain't my words, man. These are words of Jesus. We had a special guest speaker, and Jesus walked in the door, right? These are Jesus' words, words in red, right? Out of some Bibles, they put them in red. It's just the beauty of us being able to hear the words of Jesus. And in this moment, Jesus continues his sermon, and he simply says this. Be careful. Be careful, all of you. Not to practice your righteousness, your new rightness, in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. What? What? What are you saying, Jesus? Well, what Jesus is doing here, and this is a summation really of uh, the thoughts that we're sharing here today, is he says this, what matters are intentions from our heart before God. What matters are the intentions of our heart before God. And all the showmanship, and we do a lot of it, right? Think in terms of all that happens in our culture and in your week based upon the self-centeredness that we're taught in a self-esteemed culture. You know, they didn't have it in my early days. Doing what? Turn the camera around. And I can do what? I take a selfie. And we spend so much time taking selfies. And selfies aren't bad. I mean, it's a heck of a lot better than the cameras I know. I'm dating myself here. I grew up in, which were these little things that had a little square cube on the top and would turn. Yeah, I see some of you are as old as me. I don't understand that. And you'd hold the camera around here like, like, at least now I get to see the picture I'm taking with my selfie, right? And selfie this, selfie that. Oh, how people, uh, and sometimes I know I'm a little bit morbid or I'm sick, I don't know, but I observe people's selfies and how they try to hold themselves and look and how they stand and all that. And I'm like, well, I guess there is an art as well as a science to a selfie to make ourselves look good. Why? Because we are human beings and we want to look good. We don't want to look bad with others. And Jesus is addressing this because underneath the surface of it, yeah, you know, some of it's like natural, it's understandable, but underneath the surface is really a decadence that starts to grab a hold of our life because it's focused on self rather than how great is our God. Do you remember one of the first times you were ever embarrassed? like really bad. I don't know how old I was, but I remember I went with a friend to go roller skating. And roller skating was not something I'd ever done before. That's a tricky thing to do. How many of you have done roller skating? See, and the rest of you were too scared to go. I understand. There's a roller skating rink right down the way. You can practice it this week. But I remember going with my friend. I even remember uh, the kinds of pants I had. I had these uh, brown corduroy pants. I don't even think they let people wear corduroy anymore. But I, I went, and I was learning how to skate. But I tell you, I had some spectacular falls. And I'm sure other people around me were going like, oh, that was bad, right? But I get up from a fall, and I do what? Hope, hope nobody saw that. 
I'm, I'm cool, I'm cool, right? But I remember why. Because I had so many falls, and one was so bad that I ripped the pants down the back. And I was so embarrassed for the next hour until we were getting ready. I sat on my bottom over on the side because I was so embarrassed because I didn't know if people would think or, you know, because it was just embarrassing. But it's like I didn't make a good impression. But we spend an awful lot of time, don't we, trying to make good impressions, trying to make our selfies look good, uh, you know, before other people, right? What do you think about me? Hey, what do you think about me? And Jesus saw this, and he was saying, life in the kingdom is not like that. Life in the kingdom isn't focused on yourself. Oh, yes, it's the good life, but the good life has to do with the goodness of God flowing through us. And so he focuses on this subject of our intentions of the heart. And where's our intention before the heart of God? What matters are our intentions of our heart before God, and this is how you know what it is. Our intent is determined by what we want and expect from others. Our intent of why we do something is determined by what we want and expect from others. Are we more concerned about our face to the world or our person before God? You can write that one down, take a snapshot of it. I put us all in the same boat. Are we more concerned about our face to the world or our person before God? And I've simply entitled the thoughts over these three sections of Scripture we're looking at today, Audience of One. Some people ask me, how do you get up there and speak and, and, and do fairly well and feel comfortable with doing it? Well, I usually say just by the grace of God and what he's called me to do as a part of a church community. But you need to know that every week I stand in a bit of fear when I stand before you. Because I, I know people can walk out a door and go, ah, that was pretty good today. Or, man, I fell asleep. How about you? I don't know where he went with that point. Some of you, were glad to have you here, especially if you're new and, and you're seeking to find a home community. We'd love to have you. This is where God wants you to be, as we always say. But I'm always mindful in church shopping routines. It's like, well, how good is a preacher? Oh, that's that selfie world. And so I walk up here every week, many times with fear and trepidation, because I know my audience isn't you. My audience is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I'm praying in the evening on a Saturday and thinking through what needs to be on a slide and whatnot, I'm just simply saying, Lord, what do you want to say to us tomorrow? This is not about me. It's not about us. It's about you. And the sooner that we can move to an understanding that we have an audience of one, the sooner you're going to be liberated from an awful lot of anxiety in your life. It's not a shallot 
I don't care what people think kind of attitude. I'm not saying that. You get focused on pleasing God and fulfilling his purposes and walking that line. And you will find yourself filled with joy, filled with a direction like none other because you're serving an audience of one. And what Jesus does in these passages here is he's standing on this mountainside exhorting them about kingdom life and how kingdom life is moving towards goodness, moving away from just merely actions, doing the right thing to the source of the actions. And, and he's trying to recalibrate and redirect their whole way of thinking concerning the faith. He, he's, he's given very pragmatic illustrations, the six situations we looked at last week, and now he moves into three examples concerning the intentions of our heart. And those three are just simply these, giving, praying, and fasting. Now, you can take the principles that he's throwing out in his understanding here as he teaches and apply them to other kinds of aspects of your life or other spiritual disciplines, if you will. But he was in a culture straight on at that time, and he was bothered. He was bothered by the religious folks. He just had said in verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And we're like, well, I can't, I can't measure up. I can't be that good. He's like, no, your righteousness needs to go beyond these external actions to be in the very heart. And your righteousness needs to be found in me. And when Christ Jesus is ruling in our life, then it's his righteousness that begins to flow through us and right-size our conduct according to his law and plan for those that we are around. And so, he gets pretty pungent real quick. And he says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 2. He takes on the issue of giving. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now, when you read that, part of you goes, what? They would announce it with trumpets. Yeah, I am now going to give an offering or I'm going to give to a needy person. Could I have some trumpets go ahead of me? I mean, what when we pass the offering basket here at the end of service, what if we came down your row, had you stand, had you wave whatever you're going to give, have trumpets blow and say, Woo, great job! Well, that's what was going on. There was this aspect of showmanship, and something simply as good as giving. Now notice in this, Jesus assumes that you are a giving person. And anybody that's a Christ follower needs to be a giving person. You would think giving to help, giving to encourage, right? Giving to support God's ministry through a local church. You're investing in what God's doing uh, in a place like the Awakening or wherever you go to church. You should be a giver, and if you're not a giver, and I'm not parking there today, then 
there's reason to question, what? What's going on with the kingdom heart inside of you? So he's assuming that you're going to be giving, all right? But in your giving, he's looking at the intent of your giving. For these folks that he's referencing, going back to probably the Pharisees, teachers of law, some other religious heat and elite, he's saying, in your giving, you're going to get the rewards you want. And what's the reward they're wanting? Notoriety. Notoriety. Hey, I'm going to give alms, and that's referring to the alms, usually giving of the poor. And I want the attention, and they get the attention. And Jesus says, that's it. That's, you, you've received your reward. That's enough. In full. But when you give to the needy, he says to do this. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. A couple things from here. God does see your giving or your not giving. But your giving needs to be done in secret in the sense of giving to Him as an audience of one, not to give in showmanship to others. And He will reward you. Now, the interesting thing here, if you know one of these stories, Jesus at one time was sitting with His uh, disciples outside where the offering coffers were of the temple. And he was, Jesus was actually gawking at people giving their offering. And, you know, he hits, I don't know, Peter, John, or whatever, and he says, you see that lady over there? She gave two coins. She gave all that she had. How much do you think that she gave? I'm thinking, well, doesn't this sort of, isn't that contrary to what Jesus was doing with his disciples? Well, Jesus, again, he's not talking about the actions. He's talking about the heart. And the widow with the two mites or the two coins, she, he said that she gave more than anybody else because she gave out of all of her um, poverty that she gave all that she had, the riches she, she would have had. It was there. And so those maybe two copper coins, she gave more than all these other people because he was constantly trying to get the people of his day, beginning with the disciples, to look at the heart issues and not all the external actions. It's interesting, he says here, with um, this whole aspect of not letting uh, your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Have you ever tried to do that? Do something with your left hand that your right hand maybe wouldn't know? It's is that possible? I don't know. It's like uh, if you were told, do not think about pink polar bears for 15 minutes. Can you do that? Don't think about pink polar bears for 15 minutes. What have you just done? You've thought of a pink polar bear, at least in your mind somehow, right? And so when you tell your left hand not to tell your right hand what it's doing, you, you get caught up in this quagmire, all right, of externals. And it's impossible. You need to focus on the audience of one and give your alms in secret. Give your alms in secret, in quietness of spirit. And God will see and he will reward your sacrificial giving.
So that's one example. Intentions. What's your purpose? Now, I guess I'll meddle a little bit. We, d we don't have trumpets in front of people during our offerings. But how else do we like to get recognition for monetary things? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. It's just an example of in our modern day. So when you come across, and it happens a lot of times, I think, on uh, college campuses, buildings are named after the people who gave them the money to help build the building. You seen that? Would that be included in it? I don't know. I don't know that person's heart and their generosity spirit. That's great. I'm glad I enjoy those buildings, you know. But, or, may, or maybe some big plaque that says this was maybe given in honor and memory. I appreciate that. But was it given for the purpose of saying, oh, I'm the one that funded this? I mean, one of the reasons we do that is because you can pull out a lot more monies to fund buildings if you tell people they can put their name on it. But we don't stand up and say, how many of you would like to have your name on a mop? Because of the maintenance for this facility is pretty critical. And uh, we're just going to take an offering for more mops today. And we needed mops with this great group of people we had yesterday in here. But we wouldn't put our name on that. Who wants to give for the maintenance and the ongoing support? Uh, oh, here's my name. And I'll, I'm just going to stop there. I could give some more that were in my head. But it's... It's just that you got to catch yourself where at in our culture is this intent to look good versus God wanting you to just have a genuine, sincere heart and to give out of all that he's given to you. So he focuses on the giving, and then he takes up prayer. All right? Prayer, we, we do it. I mean... Yeah, what's he going to say? He says this in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Oh, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. There he is again. What do you mean to receive your reward? They wanted to be noticed. They were noticed. There's your reward. Good luck. Now, the word hypocrite is only used by Jesus um, in Scripture, and he uses it 17 times. We have a pretty deep feeling about the word hypocrite, but in his day, it was just sort of coming into permission, uh, prominence. Uh, it's a classical Greek word that has to do with actor. Actor. It's a known fact that during Jesus' time in Palestine, there was a theater in, just outside of Nazareth and Zipporah that was built. And maybe him and his, his earthly father, Joseph, actually helped construct some of that theater. I don't know. But Herod the Great, had he put theaters in uh, Jerusalem and in uh, Samaria and in Jericho. Uh, and 
so the idea of theater and actors was common in Jesus' day. Well, the word hypocrite actually means actor, which is innocent unto itself. But then it became used more as a term of also meaning one who practices deceit, one who's putting on a character, one who is two-faced, if you will, says one thing but does something else. And so he says, when you pray, do not be, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by others, all right? I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Can, can I just go to another passage real quick where he uses the words hypocrite? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. If you think Jesus is nice and soft and warm, fuzzies, no. When he was speaking and he was interacting, he was, he was pretty hard to deal with, especially if you were of that contingency of the religious um, heat and elite. Then Jesus said to the crowds, this is Matthew 23, and to the disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. They themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make uh, their... Prilacteries, which is the square box that uh, Jewish people had put on their head with scripture in it to carry it around because they felt it was uh, fulfilling an uh, Old Testament command. They make their uh, prilacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers, and do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Do you think he was making friends that day? No. But he was getting at a cancer. And the cancer was the ego. Ego's bloated leads to soul shrivering. Ego's bloated leads to souls shriveling. Where's your focus? Where's my focus? even for me being up here, as you were. Jesus, I just want to faithfully teach your word and not mess it up from what you intended for it to be in that day and for us today. Jesus saw all these actions in this activity, and if you go back then to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, he leads on by saying this, but when you pray, but when you pray, because you're to pray, but when you pray, Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. 
as awkward as it is to think about the hypocrites or us as self-centered human beings focused on our own activity, whether our intents to impress others or just to survive, when we think about our reward has been received in full, that's not all that exciting. But when I think about living my life with pure intent, with God living through me, and that my Father sees and that there is a reward from Him, I don't know what that is. My mama, I never called her mama, but my mom, she says that Scripture teaches that we're going to receive a crown in heaven. But I don't know why I always remember. She says, Carrie, just remember, the crown's only good for thrown at the feet of Jesus when you see him. There's something rich and deep when you get into the audience of one kind of relationship and knowing that the Father sees secret things you've done, ways that you've cared, ways that you've given, ways that you've interceded and you've prayed, ways that you've humbled yourself. God sees that. And there is coming a day. It may not be in this world, for sure. But there is coming a day when he will reward you. And ultimately, that reward is by being able to be in his presence eternally and serving his purposes and giving him glory, for he indeed is a great God. He goes on then and says, and when you pray, do not keep. <laughs> Evidently, this is what they were doing. Do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You know, on Sunday mornings, we have a prayer time, and I just want to reiterate the opportunity for that before service from 9.30 to 9.50. Uh, we had been praying down here in a circle, but we're trying to get people in and out and do some other logistics in the auditorium here more. So we now pray right outside the door on this side of the main venue, and we just circle up some of the white fold-up chairs there, and we pray. And I want to encourage you to come and pray. And I'm mindful that when people come together and pray, maybe you're like this in your environments and, and uh, maybe the life groups that you're a part of, you, you get really self-conscious. I can't pray out loud. What if I say something that's not right or something that's silly? Friends, if you're in an audience of one kind of relationship, just forget about everybody else around you. They're family anyway. Just speak to God like you would your brother or sister at her dinner table. Just be open. You don't need to be you know, all lofty in your words. That's what I think here in terms of this whole thing. Babbling. I don't know what they were saying. Oh, these are great words. Oh, my God. And all these phrases. I'm like, what? Just talk. Put Jesus in the chair next to you that's empty and just talk to him. Don't make it into some big old religious thing. Now, that's praying in public, of course, but then he's encouraging them to pray in secret and to be able to pray um, in secret is great, but praying in public is not something he condemns. He's just saying, when you pray. He then steps into what we know today as the Lord's Prayer, 
And he says, this is how you should pray then. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're not going to look at that, except maybe we could close here in a few short minutes. But he gives the disciples a pattern of which to pray. And there's a lot to be said in the Lord's prayers, we refer to it as, because he's not talking, this is the rote thing you need to pray, though it's not wrong to pray that. He's praying these are the kinds of things. And this whole thing of our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You're doing what there? Audience of one. Our Father in heaven, around us, the heavens are around us, right? Hallowed be your name, right? But then he has this third aspect. So he's talked about giving, he's talked about praying, and then he briefly mentions fasting. And fasting is maybe not something that you do, uh, but fasting, uh, we'll talk about it here in just a second, but it says this, when you fast, do not look somber as the, there's that word again, hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Oh, there it is again, right? But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, fasting is when you um, step back from, deprive yourself of food and drink at some level, and it's varying levels of fasting, in order to be able to seek God and to go before Him. Fasting is not like for the purpose of losing weight, okay? That's dieting, right? Fasting is a spiritual discipline. It's a discipline that I don't really practice much in my life. Sometimes I have this I fast on, I didn't eat all day. That's not it, Carrie. Uh, fasting is where you're saying, hey, I'm setting aside this time to seek God out, and I want to hear from him. It is truly a place of secret. And Jesus is saying, get up, take a shower, put on your cologne, look good, go about your day. Don't go out with all this somberness. Oh, man, I'm fasting. I'm, I'm seeking God today. That's trying to do what? The intent of our heart, getting attention from other people. But fasting is a very legitimate discipline. I remember when I first uh, stepped into fasting, I was in college, and I remember really a huge decision before me, and I ended up fasting for uh, several days, going without food and just with drink. And it pulls you into a secret place. It truly does, of, of experience with God. And because whenever you get the hunger pains, you're going, I want to, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be focusing on that prayer need in my own life. And the Lord walks you through this fasting journey. And, and uh, it's interesting, doesn't Jesus fasted for 40 days, shortly before this sermon, right? Before he started his ministry. And when he was fasting, right? When he was fasting, he ended up um, being confronted by Satan. Do you remember that? And Satan came to him and tempted him in his 40-day fast. And Jesus answered what? He says this in Matthew 4, 4, to Satan, he answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He was repeating something in Deuteronomy 8, 3 concerning uh, the mammon and that kind of thing. And Jesus was saying, in your face, Satan, you do not live by mere substance of bread and drink. You live by the word of God. 
And so when you're in fasting times, the Word of God becomes more powerful to you, whether it's the written Word or the spoken Word. And so you're in this season of seeking Him. And it's truly something that you do in secret because it's in a secret place that you end up finding yourself and others around you don't really even know what's going on. I'm in a place of seeking the Lord. But don't be the showmanship trying to get attention from others. Oh, look at what I'm doing. Jesus is saying that we need to always, always check the intent of our heart and not be the two-faced kind of person. That we need to live our life in the presence and in the face of God far more than worrying about the world. It was interesting um, when I did that first fast. I remembered I was on day three. I was heading into day four. I'm like, man, because you sort of break through certain levels of hunger issues. And I'm like, I'm going to make it for the whole week, man. I'm going to fast for the whole week. Guess what happened shortly after I started thinking those thoughts? I felt the Lord say to me, you're done. The fast accomplished its purpose in your heart and, and seeking me out, my will in this. But if you're now fasting to say, I can make it seven days, I've now gotten my own reward, right? So move on. I want to encourage us as we close. I'm going to invite the team to come up. We're going to worship the audience of one again before the audience of one. That if there is some area in your life by which you're seeking to gain attention from others, just humbly take it to the Lord and say, Lord, correct the intents of my heart. When Jesus taught them how to pray, he did teach them just simple words of exhortation. Our Father in heaven, hallowed holy be your name. You're the Holy One. Humble me, Lord. It's your kingdom, not my kingdom, that this is all about. So your kingdom, may it come. May your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us, give me today my daily bread. And forgive us our sins, our debts, as we forgive those who sin against us, or who we feel owe us a debt. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then he exhorts a little bit further about that forgiveness, for if you forgive others, when they are against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I suppose there's a lot you could try to unpack with that, but Jesus wasn't going over the top of their heads with a bunch of deep, deep religious insight and calisthenics. He was just saying, hey, don't be like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Check the intent of your heart. And your intent is what you hope to receive from others for what your purpose is and what you're doing, your action. Do it unto God in a secret place. And secret place doesn't mean that it's not in a corporate public setting. Giving, praying, 
fasting. Just three of many examples for the gut check. We're actually going to have the ushers come to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings. They're his, they're not ours. For his purposes. Sometimes I think the whole online giving has helped us with this because then it's not like... I'm sorry, things come to my mind I think of. And I, and when I was a little kid, sitting in big church, the offering plate would come and it was a metal one. And you felt bad for not maybe giving something. But if you put your hand in it and you click the bottom of it, it sounded like you put some coins in it. all the way from childhood, right? You're like, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? So maybe the online giving where you, you know, you text awakening to 77977, man, that's better. In hiding. But uh, I remember when we first started doing uh, a number of years ago, it's like, oh, is it all right for people not to bring their physical offering to the house of the Lord because it's an act of worship, right? It's like, oh, can't, can't do that online giving, whether it's ACH or credit card. It's, it's got to be the offering kind of thing there. And then the offering basket would pass, and then a lot of times regular people that gave, they wouldn't put anything in there. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, is people judging me down the road because I didn't put anything in the offering. You see how it just sort of... It's a poison. Don't go there. Just know in the secret place with the audience of one. Allow your actions and all that you do or say to be unto him. So as they come to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings, I'm going to have a stand. And I ask Angela, she had another song, but I said, I want to come back and I want to do that Great Is Our God song again. Because this is a great way for us to lead out of here and to be able to focus, focus, on the audience of one. Plus, I just wanted to hear Greg sing again because I want him to keep singing. So that's... Ushers come and then we'll close.